Welcome to patreon.com slash all our nonsense. My name is Derek. Uh, welcome to Introspective. Uh, I decided to kind of change things up a bit. Um, I was going through like some of my old stuff and I found uh, a bunch of copies of like seminal double XL magazines that I've been holding on to. I don't know what happened to the other ones to be completely honest with you, but these um, apparently held so much meaning and matter in my life that I decided to hold on to them. Uh, there's a couple issues covering, uh, you know, Biggie and one covering Tupac and there's one covering Jay-Z. And I had like, there was a time where, you know, I would go to the grocery store around the corner from my house and I would buy The Source every month and I would buy Double XL every month and a couple other magazines and stuff like that. But these were the most important. So... With introspective, what I've been doing, if, if you're listening to this on YouTube, um, you get early access to this episode on Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash nonsense to hear this episode um, on its initial release and to hear season one of introspective. But anyway, um, like I said, I've been doing this thing called introspective where I've been covering, you know, these seminal albums that make a lot of, you know, uh, they, they mean a lot to me, obviously. Um, they hold a lot of weight you know, when I think about music that has impacted my life and things like that. So, um, like I said, I've been covering a lot of these albums. To hear all of season one, you have to uh, subscribe to pay, to my Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash nonsense. Subscribe at the dollar level to hear this audio. Um, season two, I found myself, and uh, like I said, I found these these magazines, and I was like, this is cool to see the perspective that it came from from the people who actually created these works of art now all of season two will not be available here on youtube only these certain episodes uh to hear all of season two you have to subscribe to my patreon again patreon.com slash all our nonsense so this particular episode you've cl clearly read the title it's the making of ready to die uh biggie's debut album um this this particular article or this double XL is from April of 2004. So we're talking 16 years ago. And um, Ready to Die is, it's again, it's a seminal album to me. It's one of those albums that I've purchased many times. Uh, I've purchased the digital version on iTunes. I, you know, had the tape when I was younger. I bought the CD when I was older. My car was broken into, so I had to replace the CD. A, a bunch of other CDs I had to buy again, things like that. Um, I have the vinyl of it as well. So this is one of those albums that really stands the test of time for me. Um, this, you know, this album, if you want to look at it, can kind of be one of the so-called jumping off points of the East Coast, West Coast feud. However, that was really sensationalized by the media um, it wasn't a real thing where every artist on the East Coast hated every artist on the West Coast. There were certain situations where guys didn't see eye to eye. Um, Tim Dog uh, is from New York, and I can't remember exactly. I want to say Tim Dog is from the Bronx or was from the Bronx. Tim Dog passed away. I can't exactly remember. Um, Tim Dog had a song where he basically said, I, I think the song was just called Fuck Compton, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and... Um, you know, um, you're, you're dissing like, you know, th this is where gangster rap basically originated. N.W.A. straight out of Compton, obviously. 
So there's a bar that Snoop throws at Tim Dog, and then there's video footage of MC8 saying basically, "Can I say fuck Tim Dog? You know, fuck Tim Dog." So a lot of people felt a certain way. You know, that was one of the shots. So a lot of people from the West Coast felt a way about a guy like Tim Dog. Then you have a situation where before you know the whole Big versus Pac thing, which wasn't really a thing, and and even Tupac told the Outlaws before he passed that, you know, he was like, I'm off that, you know, I'm a, I'm a piece things up with big. We've done this. It is what it is. I'm off that. I'm going to make peace. And we, we do know that he also made peace with Nas before he passed away. It's just that, um, after he made peace with Nas, he said that he was going to go back and change the songs where he kind of dissed Nas on Machiavelli. And, uh, obviously the situation happened where he went to the Tyson fight in Las Vegas and lost his life. He was shot and then passed away uh, seven days later. Uh, ironically enough, the day that I'm recording this is Sunday, September 13th of 2020, which would be the 24-year anniversary of Tupac's death. Again, he was shot on September 6th. He passed away uh, on September the 13th. So um, this, you know, Ready to Die was released uh, not too shortly after the whole quad studio shooting where, you know, Tupac was robbed. Um, Biggie was upstairs recording in one of the, one of the studios at quad and, uh, we'll see. tells the story and I've heard him tell the story many times. Uh, they reenacted it in the, uh, Biggie biopic notorious where C's was outside smoking. And he saw Pac walking down the street and he yelled to him like, yo, Pac, what up? He's like, C's, what's going on? He was like, yeah, Big's up here recording. He was like, all right, well, tell him, tell him I'm coming up. And then C's goes in and he tells Big, he's like, yo, Pac's, I just saw Pac on the street. He's coming up. And he's like, yo, word, go get him. As C's went down in the elevator, the elevator doors open and Pac was in the lobby of the building being robbed. Now, I've actually heard a different point of view of this. Actually, not a different point of view. Some say that the first shot fired was actually from Tupac and how he got shot in the groin area was he was pulling his gun out of his pants and shot himself some people say that was the first shot and that for that kind of forced the guys that were robbing him to shoot at that point um again the only people that know the truth about that are Pac, who's no longer with us obviously the gentleman who robbed him and god i don't know what happened this is just what i've heard and i've heard this fairly recently like within the last two weeks or so so if that is what really happened, that's an interesting point of view. Again, I don't know. I'm just going off what I was told. So again, here we are. Um, the making of Ready to Die. This is as told to Double XL Magazine. Um, and this would have been the point I would imagine. Let me check back to the beginning. I want to say Elliot was actually still in charge over at Double XL at this time. Excuse me. It's crazy looking back on this stuff. There's a there's a full page ad for the first Carter album by Wayne, um, which is crazy because you know this is after Juvenile, Turk, BG, and all of them were off for cash money, and Wayne was left to hold the fort down. And obviously, we all know what happened. He went on to be a mega star. Um, like BG Turk and Juvie, you know, they're still stars. And Juvie, obviously, out of all of them, the biggest star in his own right of the remaining guys. But Wayne went on to be one of the biggest stars in the whole goddamn world. So it's it's really interesting. Uh, there's an ad for NBA Ballers for PlayStation, Xbox, PlayStation 2. 
It's interesting. By Midway Sports. I couldn't tell you the last time Midway. There's a lot of G-Unit ads in here as well. Um, they usually mention an ad for Cassidy's first album. I want to say Elliot was still the editor-in-chief at this time. But I don't see anything. But I'm pretty sure this is still direct. There's a lot of G-Unit content in here, and I know that's what that a lot of that was done during Elliot's run. Uh, the Source was doing a lot of stuff on uh, Murder, Inc. because Benzino had a pretty close relationship with uh, Irv and Ja and those guys. And um, <laughs> G-Unit, um, Shady, Aftermath, their sounding off point was basically double XL at that point. So that was another time. And that was a situation where people thought, hey, this is another one of those beefs that could end in somebody dying. Like with Jay and Nas, it was more about the art of rapping and let me be quite frankly clear there were some so, some personal things going on there jay-z was having a relationship with Nas's baby mother so obviously that is personal and a lot of that it started from like little things like jay had booked a studio session from uh for uh reasonable doubt um and Nas was supposed to be on the song and Nas didn't show up and that kind of started a little bit of it and then, you know, things progress. Just like where Pac and Big had their misunderstanding, there's many pictures and video of Pac and Big together hanging out, kicking it or whatever. And then you think about Nas and Jay, there's that one picture of Jay and Nas in a club sitting down at a table with glasses of champagne raised, basically doing a toast. So it's like a lot of these beefs started from somewhere where these people had a personal relationship and then it just deteriorated. With 50 and Ja, that's a very different thing. And everybody's like damn near like every musical youtube channel that talks about hip-hop has covered that and i'm not going to cover that and you know a lot of people the funny thing is a lot of people are starting to see that a lot of the stuff that 50 said is not exactly true and it's like yeah i killed ja like you're like oh well, ja makes really soft poppy music and then like 50 like moved ja off the board and then turned around and made songs like if i was your best friend it's like and, and even ja and irv talked about it on the breakfast club you know, they asked him, does, does it kind of upset you? And Jaws like, he basically told you guys pizza was the worst thing in the world, and then he turned around and sold you guys pizza. So you, you, you would have to understand, like, people forget how big Murder, Inc. was. And not even just Murder, Inc., Ja and Ashanti specifically. Like, you could not turn on, there was a period where you couldn't turn on the radio without at least hearing four songs that either featured the two of them or that were produced by Irv and had that Murder, Inc. sound. So, but again, not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Big. Um, so this is the making of Ready to Die. Um, they have quotes and, and stories from Lil C's, of course, uh, Big's close friend, member of uh, Junior Mafia, Banger from Junior Mafia, uh, Prince Charles Exal uh, uh, Prince Charles Alexander, who was the Ready to Die engineer, Easy Mo B, who was a producer who also worked with Pac around this time as well, uh, Chucky Thompson, who was a producer and a member of the Bad Boys, uh, Hitmen, uh, which is basically the guys that Puff worked with to craft a lot of these records during the Bad Boy Golden era. Um, there's Nasheen Merrick, also a member of the Hitmen. Mr. C, who was a DJ at Hot 97. Uh, he was a DJ for Big Daddy Kane, and he also discovered Biggie. Uh, Mateo, Matt Life, Capilongo, a.k.a. Matty C, who worked at The Source and ran the Unsigned Hype column. And basically, you know, he did the write-up of Big and the Source. And then, you know, from that point on, you know, 
he met Puff and was introduced to Andre Harrell, and then the thing, the situation didn't work out for Puff at uh, Uptown, and then Bad Boy was formed after that and Big, Craig Mack, Faith Evans, those were the first artists of the label. Um, Method Man, obviously one of my favorite rappers of all time, uh, phenomenal actor as well, uh, one member of the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, Polk, one half of Tone and Polk, the Trackmasters, Digga, producer slash artist, DJ Premier, Legend, one of my favorite producers, also one half of Gangstar with Guru, uh, also happens to be the father of Jalen, who is the nephew of Derek Jeter. Um, Jeter's sister definitely has a thing for hip-hop guys, because she dated, she dated Sky Zoo before she dated Premier, and then obviously her and Primo had a baby. And then Lord uh, Lord Finesse, producer and also a member of the, you know, legendary Digging in the Crates Collective. Um, you don't get more hip-hop than DITC. So um, it starts off, obviously, with the intro. It was produced by Diddy. Now, this is very interesting. There's a documentary on Showtime uh, about Suge Knight, and he talks about all the stuff with Death Row and how, you know, he talks about how he spent a lot of money out of his per his pocket on his own, not, you know, not Interscope, not Time Warner, keeping a lot of the guys on death row out of jail. Dr. Dre went to jail multiple times, multiple fucking times, and a lot of people don't know that. And when Dre left death row, he had like five months where he was in jail, where he basically had to reflect on things, and it was easy for him to decide to move on and leave the company afterwards you know there's the famous story it's depicted differently in straight out of compton where he left the studio after there was an altercation and he got in his ferrari and he went driving that's not how it happened he tells the story that basically i just bought this brand new testarossa and i wanted to try it out and i was speeding and a cop hit his lights behind me and then i dropped it in gear and pushed further and it's like it was almost like he wanted to be caught he could have easily easily pulled over when the cop hit his lights uh, for that, you know, he went to jail for five months, and when he got out, it was, you know, the time that he said, I'm done with this death row stuff, and, you know, he moved on and started Aftermath. But anyway, um, Suge talks about the fact that he and Diddy uh, had a relationship. You have to remember, and this is the intro, in the intro of Ready to Die, you hear um, there's just like these seminal records I guess it's to kind of duplicate Biggie growing up. You know, for the first thing you hear is um, supposed to be Miss Valetta Wallace and Big's dad, and basically while she's giving birth to him. And then it's it, it's like the journey of his life up until the point where he gets out of jail and says, no, nah, the guy's like, we'll see you back here. He's like, no, nah, I got big plans. And then that's where the album starts. So... Uh, Shook talks about how he and Diddy had a pretty good relationship and he, you know, he had to give Diddy permission to use, there's a Snoop record in there and he had to give, uh, Diddy permission to use that record for the intro. So, uh, the intro again produced by Diddy, uh, this, there's two points here. It comes from Easy Mo B and, and Prince Charles. The whole storyline from the album starting in the beginning when you hear the robbery happening on the, happening on the train and Rapper's Delight in the background, everything that was Puff's concept to create a storyline for the album. He just gave me a list of records that he wanted, and I brought them back to him. He said he wanted Rapper's Delight, Audio 2's Top Villain, another great uh, old-school hip-hop record. Actually came out a few days ago that um, when um, he says, Gizmo's cutting up for these suckers, that's down, and we all thought he was saying down with me, 
he actually says down with me they're one of us like it's a pause so and everybody when we found this out on twitter a couple of days ago we were like holy shit we've all been saying it the wrong way the whole fucking time but that's interesting um there's superfly uh got to give it up by marvin Gaye was originally in there but it got changed probably for sampling reasons and basically songs that explain their era uh, Prince Charles goes on to say, first of all, I'm the father on the intro. The era. There are all these voices on the intro. The Walona, what the fuck you doing? You can't control that goddamn boy that was me. And the guy at the end, the guard that uh, lets him out of jail and says, you'll be back. That's me also. And the reason that they use me is because three guys had gone in and tried. I forgot who. I was there. Puffy was there. Biggie was there. I was engineering and a couple of guys who were just hanging around went in and tried to do that part. And they all, they're, they're all like very stiff sounding. God damn it, Walona, and I'm like, yo, Puff, I'm an angry black man, you should let me try that, and I went in there, and I screamed, I mean, God damn it, Walona, what the fuck you doing, I was way, way up in it, they fucking rolled, they loved it, they kept it, that was one of the things that kind of helped me to bond with the whole project, because I'm about 10 years older than Puffy, so I was really professional, I had a really professional vibe, so when I went in and did that, that really broke a lot of the ice, so, the whole time, you know, if you were wondering who that voice is, because Big and his father obviously didn't have a relationship, and he's talked about it. He talks about it in, you know, both albums, and then if you've ever heard Born Again, it's basically a lot of stuff that he recorded that just maybe didn't make either of the albums, because um, Big, you know, was murdered two weeks before Life After Death came out. So Born Again, it's just Puff taking these old records and then putting, you know, artists of the time on them there was a record that had you know the dudes from cash money uh juvie went the hot boys basically it had the hot boys on it there was a uh, uh, dead wrong features eminem and stuff like that so he just took these other records and then put these other artists over them and then there's the biggie duets which to be honest not a lot of us actually asked for that album but whatever shout out puff um so anyway um the second record on the on the album is things and changed uh that's produced by dominic owens and kevin scott uh, this comes from Lil C's. That was one of the most, uh, that one was the most played in the car. Big love that song. There was no particular story behind it. It was more of a song that had a concept behind it rather than a story itself. Biggie made it to represent Brooklyn to show how he grew up, how we grew up. He wanted to show what was, uh, what he was accustomed to and the lifestyle he was used to. It was one of the very first ones made. Whenever you make a track of that nature with lyrics so real, it stands out. Things Don't Change is a dope record. It really does set the tone for the album. You hear the intro which is, you know, very interesting. And the intro probably, in my opinion, is one of the best intros to any album in the history of hip-hop. Um, but this song, it, you know, when it goes into things and change, it's kind of dark, and uh, it, it does kind of have, like, a, a little bit of a boom-bap sound to it, but it definitely sets the tone for the album. Big is just basically just talking shit, and he's telling you, like, how shit, shit went down on Fulton and stuff like that, and he is setting the tone for the album. So then you go on to number three, Give Me the Loot, one of my favorite Biggie songs of all time by far. Like, it, it's one of the standards. It just fucking is. Um, Big, Give Me the Loot was produced by Easy Mo B. Um, Easy Mo goes on to say, when he did Give Me the Loot, I was like, whoa, dude's got problems. People who want, who want to battle him go up against him. Nobody's going to want to battle this cat. If you heard everything he said in his lyrics, you won't live. I remember very clearly that the, that song was done during the daytime. It was still light outside. Junior Mafia was there. I never really worked with nobody that really spit that hard before. So when I was in the studio, I was like, yo, man, you sure you ain't saying too much? And I remember C's and Chico sitting back and saying, yo, Mo, 
just chill. You sensitive. I was like, I just want to make sure we get sold. I don't want no records getting snatched off the shelves. That's my whole thing. I guess that was their definition of being sensitive. Maybe Puff didn't necessarily respond to me at the time when I came to him and I presented my concerns to him, but I remember telling him, yo, that shit about being pregnant and the number one mom pinned it, yo, be careful with that because you could have all kinds of Christian rights and women's rights organizations trying to pull your stuff down off the shelves and all that. Now, um, there are some records where Big went a little too far and they had to kind of do a scratch over it so you wouldn't hear it. And this is stuff that's on the album and the the I don't care if you're pregnant give me yeah like that that was a concern for them and Puff definitely said to Big like yo like I don't know man like that 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 bar for sure was a concern I do know that I'm not saying I was there during the recording but I've read enough and seen enough um interviews about the recording of the album and I do know that that bar was a concern for them um at the time Puffy kind of brushed it off and I just walked away in my mind like, all right, but I guess later it made sense to him even without him coming back to me because that lyric got blurred out so it worked out the way it was supposed to. As far as Big rhyming the two different characters' voices, he went in the booth and it just kind of happened. He just started doing it. He would do one voice then come behind and do the other one later, like just like leave a gap so he can come back and fill in the spaces. I was like, yo, that's creative. And he really had cats fooled, even just last year. And again, this, is, this article is released in 2004. Uh, so this has been tw- th- uh, 2003. Even just last year, I was around somebody who was playing that, and still after all that time, he was like, "Yo, who was that? That was Puff." I was like, "Man, y'all really can't hear. Uh, y'all really can't hear. That's him. He did two voices. That just shows you how good he was." Mr. C goes on to say, "I clearly remember Gimme the Loop because I did the scratches on it. Remembering that is like yesterday. I used Kids Hoods verse from a Tribe Called Quest scenario remix." Everybody knows how much I love Tribe, so like, there's no point for me even to go any deeper into that. But the scenario and the scenario remix, phenomenal. Anyway, um, and how I did the turntables and made the word bad, bad, bad from turning the knob off on the turntables from pressing the stop button each time that I brought the record back. It's a different effect to where you turn the knob off on the turntable to where you stop the turntable. You get a different effect on the record. So when you bring it regularly, it's like bad, turn the knob off, bad, slower, press the button, bad, slowest. So that's how the scratches actually took place on Gimme the Loot. Um, again, Big, Gimme the Loot is, you know, when you're talking about Big, if, if you don't talk about that song. And also a song like fucking Machine Gun Funk, in my opinion, which is actually the next track on the record. Um, just hands down, Big was in his fucking bag, like in his bag. Like there are so many, there's just so many rappers who, you can hear where they borrow from Big, and I'm just like, like y'all don't even get it, dog. Like he was ahead of his time, and it sucks because he was cut down in his prime. Like we only got two albums. Like we got, jeez, how many albums did we get from Pac before? Uh, Tupacalypse now, strictly for my niggas, me against the world, all eyes on me, Machiavelli. There's another one, Thug Life. Uh, there's another one in there, if I'm not mistaken. So we got like six or seven albums from Pac before we lost him. We only got two albums from Big before we lost him. He was cut down in his prime. Anyway, uh, Machine Gun Funk, also produced by Easy Mo B. Uh, Biggie picked that beat in my car. I had this green Acura, and we used to ride around Brooklyn, like Fulton Street and St. James, where he lived. I'd pick him up off the stoop where he lived. It'd be me, him, D-Rock, Lil C's, Chico, as many as we could, riding around in the car. 
we just ride around and just blaze and listen to beats and that's how he picked a lot of beats but the actual section session for machine gun funk is vague to me so to be honest let's put it like this there was some hazy years i'm a changed man now uh chucky thompson goes on to say big was crazy he was just in there with some socks on and boxer draws because it was really hot doing his rhymes that's when he was actually writing stuff down he didn't take long at all. It was like he knew what he wanted to say. He'd be in there just chilling, smoking or whatever, and then he'd write two words, and then he'd go back to chilling and write two more words, and then he'd go in the booth. Uh, that's crazy. I've heard of um, I'm Gonna Do Life After Death. There's a story of uh, the song uh, Tonight, which is I'm Fucking You Tonight with R. Kelly, that you know Big wasn't there. Puff had seen R. Kelly somewhere, had him come to the studio, and he called Big like, yo, I got R. Kelly in here. I'm trying to get him on the album. You need to come down here and fuck with him. And Big didn't really want to go. But when they showed up to the studio, R. Kelly was in the booth with his shirt off singing the hook. Um, again, you know, it, it, it R. Kelly is a very sensitive subject right now because of everything. So, um, you know, but everybody, you know, the cool thing right now is verses and everybody's talking about who would be you know good against who in a versus battle and somebody said something who would you do versus r kelly and i'm like there's nobody he would literally stomp like and they're like no and i'm like yes he would because if you think about it not only his songs the stuff he wrote and produced for other artists there's nobody that could really hang with r kelly in a versus battle and somebody was like you know what that is a really good point it, it'd just be too hard so anyway uh number five is warning which is probably one of my favorite big songs of all time um, Easy Mo B, also another one. He did a lot of this fucking album, just so you know. So he did songs three, four, five, and six. And actually, yeah, three, four, five, and six. But anyway, uh, the significant thing about Warning is I'm definitely not trying to diss him. Uh, he put me on the map. He's the first I ever worked with, so total respect to him. But that beat was offered first to Big Daddy Kane. I remember him sitting in my crib and I was playing him beats. I forget the album at the time that he was doing, and you know. Kane was also in, always into the Barry White, Isaac Hayes thing. So I did this joint off of Isaac Hayes, and I'm just feeling it. I'm feeling myself. I just know he's going to love this. This is the vibe. But he was like, play the next beat. I was like, yo, hold up, man. You sure? You sure you don't want that? Um, that's Isaac Hayes. He said, you heard what I said. Play the next beat. So I just kept the beat and held on to it. A few months later, when it was time to play big beats, I played it for him. Oh, man, Puff went crazy. He went crazy like, yo, man, this is it. Warning. One, that... I remember Juicy. I remember very, very vividly the first time I heard Juicy. And um, before Warning became a single, I remember my brother having Ready to Die. I think one of his friends had like dubbed it for him. And then he, I, I walked into his bedroom and he was playing the album and Warning happened to be the song that he was playing. And, you know, just when 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 puff is doing the part well in the video it's puff remember them niggas from the hill like when when that part goes off i'm like that's crazy and then big's like yeah you know when big's like yo my niggas fame up then my niggas not nah, love wouldn't disrespect i didn't say them they scooped me to some niggas that you knew from back when when you was clocking minor figures and i was like dog this is crazy like so when they talk about give me the loot where big does two voices yeah, but when you talk about warning the way that played out, that like it really sounded like an actual phone conversation. So whenever I got my little allowance the next time around, 
the first thing I did was go to the Del Mar Loop and went to Streetside Records and I bought Ready to Die. I bought the cassette because I didn't have enough to get the CD at the time. So I bought the cassette and I listened to it front to back. Like I know this album probably better than half the other albums I know in hip hop or any music for that matter. But Ready to Die is always up there for me. So uh, speaking of which, it goes into the title track, Ready to Die. Again, produced by Easy Mo B. Um, he goes on to say again, here we go with the sensitive part. When Big said, fuck my mom, when he said, fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl, I was like, damn. Okay, well, maybe fuck the world, fuck your girl, but damn, fuck your moms. We all knew he didn't literally mean that. Anybody knows that. That was just his whole intensified approach to explaining just how much he felt. He was ready to die. It was just an emotional expression. But again, when he said stuff like that, I was like, it's like I'm working with Ice Cube, America's Most Wanted. I was like Brooklyn's Most Wanted. I'm sure um, I'm sure Cube and NWA and stuff like that had a profound effect on him. I'm sure in some type of way he was influenced by that stuff. And at the time, we all were. So, you know, that and, and when Big does say that, like, that you you really feel like, number one, calling your album ready to die. That's a crazy thing. That's a crazy, crazy thing, right? That's a crazy concept. And having having the actual song on the album, the title track being ready to die, like, it's like, all right, we've all felt a point in our life where we're just like, this is stupid, this is enough, you know, like, everything is against me, and this is how I feel, blah, 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 blah. We've all had that fuck the world moment in our lives, and we're like, fuck it, if I die now, I'll, everybody will be happy. But... You have to understand, there is somebody out there who absolutely wants you alive, even if you don't feel that way. It does. That's a thing. For somebody to say it the way he did, like, insane. So there's an insert in here where it sees, and uh, it's called Down with, the Key, Down with the King. Lil C's provides insight into his big homie. Biggie always recorded with all the lights out. The only time there was a light in there was when there was cameras in there in the dark the only thing you see is the smoke from the weedy smoked middle of the day lights off when you're riding in the light a lot of shit was recorded at night daytime was more like the writing process like just chilling big ain't have a bunch of records like you look at pox history and you like damn like the nigga putting out records seven years after his death still on release shit you never heard that's to let you know how a nigga was working big wasn't like that big was more like i'll work when i gotta work if it's my day off i'm not gonna work on my day off just to stop right here the interesting thing about this is Studio time is not cheap. It's cheaper now because we have di digital audio workstations that anybody can purchase. Um, Logic Pro from the Mac App Store on an iMac or a MacBook is a hundred bucks. Uh, I think Pro Tools is like a hundred. You can get a really good mic off Amazon, an audio interface, and record in your home. And that's why a lot of the old studios that we grew up knowing about don't exist anymore because now you're at a point where you know when fruity loops became available to everybody it was like oh you can make you can produce your own records and then with logic they've got loops built in you can you know use that stuff to produce and record your own records so these big studios again they're not a thing anymore like a lot of them the hit factory is not open anymore like a lot of these studios just don't exist anymore because nobody's renting out studio time Studio time is, was super expensive at that point. So to think that Big would just sit there and write during the day and then record more at night, think about how many hours he's wasting. That's on somebody, and the, the engineer has to be paid for those hours. 
uh, Daddy's House, I believe, was that's Puff's. That was Puff's studio, and that's where Bad Boy artists record. So I, I guess Puff may have eaten a lot of the charges. But to be honest with you, I don't know if Daddy's House was up and running at this time because this is one of the first albums to come out on Bad Boy. Um, so I would have to double check on that. But just thinking about that, like he spent a lot of time in the studio. Uh, so getting back to C's, he was writing his lyrics down before in the early days. He didn't like to forget things. I'm going to write this down so I won't forget it. Some joints he just had like, yo, I got it. When he was doing rhymes prior to Ready to Die and Life After Death, that was just going in. It took him time to get comfortable. Once he got comfortable with it, it was to the point where you'd think he was bullshitting. He would sit in the room and just sit there and bop for about two hours, no pen, and no paper, and just smoke about 10 L's before anything. We'd be like, you all right? He'd be like, I'm chilling. I might. The nigga would just get up and go in there and rap. And I'm talking about the whole song done, not just the verse. And to cut in here, Jay-Z, famously the same way. Like, the Diplomats, they had their issues with Jay because Jay had his issues with Cam and Jim. Zeke tells a story. Um, and Cam told the story when he was on Rap Radar podcast that you know, Jay told him one day they were at baseline. He saw Cam in the hall and he's like, yo, step in here with me. I want to talk to you. And he was like, yo, I'm and Cam's like, all right, whatever. And Jay's like, yo, I'm kind of noticing there's some tension around here. I just want to let you know there doesn't have to be tension. And Cam was like, all right, bet. Well, I got this song I want you to do. So they walk into the next room. So this goes back to the part where Zeke tells the story. He was like, I saw him do the shit and because people would always say, yo, Jay doesn't write and Zeke's like, whatever, bullshit. And he was like, I saw him do the shit. And Zeke says they went in there and the engineer, you know, played him New York City and Jay just kind of bobbed his head for a couple of seconds. It was like maybe two minutes, I think Zeke says. And he was like, all right, I'm ready. Let's go. And Zeke's like, get the fuck out of here. And he said, Jay went in there and laid the whole fucking verse. And like they were just shocked. They were in total shock and awe because they had never seen anybody do this. Big did the same thing. When Jay was recording Reasonable Doubt and Big came in to do Brooklyn's Finest, Jay passed him a pen and a pad and Big was like, nah. And he he just kind of, he pushed it to Big on the table and Big pushed it back like, I don't need that. And Jay was like, nah, I don't need it either. And that's how they both found out that they didn't write anything down. So um, Guru talks about um not guru of gangstar but rest in peace to guru of gangstar but young guru who was an engineer at rockefeller talks about you know and he's still pretty much jay's engineer to this day they're this thing that they do they call downloading well jay will write rhymes in his head and he basically had to do it because he would be somewhere where there wasn't pen or paper so he'd have to keep he keep reciting the rhyme to himself in his head so he wouldn't forget it and then when he got home he would write it down and then eventually he just stopped doing that. So he just his brain is full of all these rhymes. And he's like, it's a really cool thing. But at the same time, he's lost maybe, I think he said at the time the article was done, he said he's lost like five albums worth of material doing that because he's forgotten stuff. Well, now he does this thing with Guru where they go and um, there's no beat. Guru just, you know, brings up a track and then Jay just starts spitting all these rhymes in his head and they call it downloading. And then they just save it to a file somewhere, basically. Uh, they save the session. Now, when it comes to Nothing Was The Same, Drake's uh, third album, yeah, his third, uh, Thank Me Later, Take Care, Nothing Was The Same. So Drake, heard the verse that Jay-Z has on um, Pound Cake, Drake heard it 
but apparently it was on a different beat or maybe he heard it without the beat and they hit them up and they were like yo there's this verse that hove had i was wondering if i can get that verse from my album and they just sent him the vocals because there's no beat with it from my understanding there was no beat but that's just a testament to how big and jay were both fucking geniuses and masters of rhyme and, and jay st- of course still is and they're they're the top they're the top of what they do they're the upper echelon because writing there are things that i have i have ideas and i may like at a time there used to be a time where i wouldn't put them down i'd be like oh that's fucking dope i'll remember that for later and i'd forget now i just with an iphone just pop open the fucking notepad and you type the stuff in there so you don't forget and then like i go back and i look at my notes and i'm like that really isn't a good idea and i'll just delete it but you know i have a really good memory but i have so much stuff stored in my memory that there are some things that i don't remember so i'm like okay i get it now i get how he could do this and why he did this so anyway that was just you know my little anecdote about that um he did unbelievable so back to c's he did unbelievable like that he did big papa like that those were like the last records those were like we need these radio records this is when puff had left uptown uh the label Uptown wanted to get rid of Big because they said the shit was too hard. They was like, what is he talking about? Killing himself, ready to die. They ain't want to fuck with it. <coughs> Excuse me. But there's shit that was harder than that that didn't make the album. That was just something Puff was doing. I think he just had a different, uh, he'd seen a different thing for the album. He was like, take this, take this, put that away and do these two. You'd be into a big song like you hear lines and you just crouch your face up like, oh, you just be bugging off that shit because that shit is so deep my thing was just watching other people's reaction i was used to it so it made me feel special i'm part of that so i was just watching other people's faces just straight up like this nigga is fucking nasty big black thug looking ugly motherfucker spitting and saying it in his rhymes that's the shit i like about the motherfucker he's the nigga that used to blow himself up in the mix of flossing used to say some shit like i got punched in the eye or i'm ugly as fuck it's like he just comes right out and says it he's so cool he's just talking some crazy shit Coogee sweater, da-da-da, and he just start talking about I'm ugly. He's talking about Coogee sweaters and going on to say he ugly right after that. It was the illest thing to see. Uh, to see. Um, Coogee uh, sweater, however, Coogee sweater, however, black and ugly as ever. Like, he said in his fucking rhymes, Big was liter- literally, he was on another level. He was just on a whole nother fucking level, and Hove is the same way. So then we go on to One More Chance, the album version, it's all right. I'm more of a fan, to be honest with you. Like most people, I'm more of a fan of the remix. Um, but uh, that was produced by Norman and Digger, the Blues Brothers, Chucky Thompson, and Puffy. Uh, additional vocals by Total, instruments by Chucky Thompson. Um, so C says, my sister did the interlude for One More Chance with all the girls on it. The other girls on it, uh, that's just my sister's friends. My little niece, she did the intro part before One More Chance. All you hoes calling here for my daddy was just people that was just around. If, you, if you're if you around and he needs you, yo, I need a hook done. And that's just how it went. Uh, Big's daughter, Tiana, was still pretty much an in, uh, in infant when Ready to Die was recorded. So everybody's like, no, that's his daughter. I'm like, that's not his daughter. Tiana was not talking yet. She was very, very young at the point this album was recorded. Um so prince charles alexander goes on to say one more chance i remember specifically that song has a piano figure that goes uh about anyway whatever, i'm not gonna do that part one of the things that i did is all the way through the song there are two parts of that piano figure and the second part i had to keep writing so i had to raise the level so it's like whatever and louder 
So it would be that level with the first song. And it was a request. Puffy actually asked me to do that because it was a sample. But he didn't want the sample to sound just like it had sounded before. He wanted a nuance. He wanted something that had its character in the bad boy world. It was like little stuff that he was requesting that really gave bad boy a sound. I remember him turning to me and saying, do you think we have a sound? This was after the flavor in your ear, after Biggie came out. And I think we were moving on to Faith. And Puffy turned to me and said, do you think that we, meaning Bad Boy, have an established sound? Um, Puff got accused. There's the, the tagline, we invented, to the, we, invented to, uh, we invented the remix, which actually went on to be an album on Bad Boy. And it was like a compilation of all the best Bad Boy remixes, which is actually a really dope album. One More Chance, of course, is on there and some other stuff. Um, there was that time where, and this is, I think it was probably around the time Big passed or was murdered. He passed away of natural causes. He was murdered. But Puff became a superstar in his own right. But a lot of people were just like, how can you call this art when he's just done nothing but steal from other artists because of all the sampling? A lot of bad boy stuff was very heavily sampled or samples that were replayed because maybe they couldn't clear it or something like that. And um, Puff took a lot of flack for that. He really took a lot of flack. So for to read this and then be like, do you think we have a, our own sound? It's funny because everybody says that Puff's sound was just reorchestrated from other artists of you know times before them. So this is really interesting. So Digger goes on to say, Puff was in my ear every 10 seconds in that session. When me, Big, C's, and Klept, and some of the crew was in the studio, it was all good. But once Puff came on the scene, everything got tight. At the time, Puff was still learning about production, and he wanted to show that he knew something about music. He wanted certain arrangements, and I was looking at him like, what the hell is this guy talking about? We listened to him for half a second, then we were like, yeah, whatever. Um, a lot of this, this particular instance... Um, they cover the making of Life After Death as well, and there's some things in there that where people talk about this, and I'm going to do that episode. It's only right that I do both. Um, but yeah, I'll cover that episode, and you know we'll go into those things. But that is kind of a thing that people would say about Puff, especially during that time. A lot of the artists on the outside who requested that Puff record, you know, produce a song for them, I don't know if they really knew that Puff isn't the one working the boards. Puff isn't the one playing the piano. Puff isn't the one doing the drums or doing the sample. Puff gets the credit for the producer because as because bringing big, you know, I don't I'm not sure how if it played out the way it does in the film. Again, this is a biopic and you have to understand these are it's based upon the artist's life, but a lot of things have been changed, right? So in the movie when the you know, Puff brings the record to Big with the juicy sample big is like yo niggas are gonna laugh at me if i do this record and then he's like yo they're gonna laugh at you all the way to the bank to use that sample i don't know if anybody else would have had that idea so you do have to give puff or producer credit for that for him telling them this is how i want the record to be done that's 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 him doing an arrangement whether you like it or not the producer just because somebody's like he didn't make the beat how is he the producer that does not make you a producer solely you know, you may be good at doing programming drums, but you can't play a horn or you can't play the piano. So just because you program the drums, does that give you sole producer credit on the record? No, you have to talk about the person who played the strings or the horns and things like that. Where, so when somebody brings Puff in to make a record, they're bringing Puff in because he understands sound and he understands what's good for radio. And Puff does understand what's hot. Like, 
I think Diddy is he's interesting because like anytime Puff talks, it's like he's giving a TED talk for the hood, like 100 percent. Like he's telling you about style and like what's hot and what's not. And like, like, you know, I'm not feeling that. That's whack. Like he's legit giving a TED talk to the hood and he's giving a TED talk at the same time to the suburbs for these kids who want to be a part of something who want to feel like they're really a part of something you know i remember in the early 2000s where kids were wearing headbands and do-rags and wristbands because they saw puff do it that was really a fucking thing so he literally became the ambassador to bring the hood to the suburbs so if you hire Puff to produce a record, he's not going to sit there and program the drums. He's not going to play the piano, but he's going to make sure that shit comes out immaculate when it's all said and done. Uh, number eight is the Fuck Me interlude. This one is produced by Puff. Um, I don't. The funny thing is how a producer, how you can credit anyone as a producer on an interlude if it's not really music. Because he's just saying, you know, and Big could have easily had this idea. But anyway... C says, we were just trying to put some personality and just put some comedy and uh, some sense of humor into it. Uh, him and Kim did it. What they did was there was a piano in the booth of the studio we were working in. It was in Daddy's house. So Daddy's house was a thing at this point. Um, it had the piano and the chair to the piano, meaning the bench. Big is heavy, and when he sit on something, you hear that creak. That's the shit when there's too much weight on that shit. And he just told Kim to sit on top, and he just started, like, rocking her. Chucky Thompson goes on to say that was crazy because they kept laughing. They was in there. They was even sicker takes that we couldn't use. Uh, we all kept laughing, but she was tearing his ass up. They were in the booth with the lights out. We didn't know what the little bed noise was. Somebody said, what the hell is that noise? He was like, it's the piano stool. He was sitting on there shaking it. Um, and if you, um, if you remember correctly, I believe there is a song that's playing in the background during the interlude. And I want to say it's Fiendin' by Jodeci. I would have to double check. Um, and it makes sense if it is Fiendin' because Puff obviously has his history with Jodeci. Puff was the A&R at Uptown when Jodeci was the biggest R&B group there was. He's responsible for putting the backwards, you know, hats on them and putting them in the, the combat boots. And I remember being a kid, like, where my cousins, like, I was always like, give me Nikes, Nikes, Nikes. And my cousins were like, no, nah, I want Jodeci boots for Christmas. And I remember my cousins, Greg and Jessica, like, getting super hyped because they got the boots for Christmas. And I remember them stomping around my grandmother's house like a Jodeci video that Christmas because they were so hyped off of those boots. So it does make sense that it would probably be, I'm pretty sure it was Fainting by Jodeci in the background that was playing during the Fuck Me interlude. Um... There's another insert by Easy Mo B. Credit is due. Too often forgotten producer Easy Mo B was essential to Bad Boys and Biggie's rise to the top. Um, I don't know what Easy Mo B is doing right now, and I'm not sure what the last thing he produced was, but it's interesting. Again, these are some of Big's biggest records. And now we're in the streaming era. With Easy Mo B having a producer credit, and that would give him a writer credit on the record. It'd be interesting to see how much he's getting in residuals from those records. Because I'm looking at the rest of the songs on here, and he's got other production credits on the album. So, I don't know. But uh, Easy Mo B says, in 92, 93, around that time we were making the album, we was in the era of a tribe called Quest and Leaders of the New School. Just be, new, Leaders of the New School just before Busta got out the group. Naughty by nature, that was New York shit at the time. 
What was going on in LA was the remnants of NWA. Ice Cube, what I would consider some of the roughest stuff out was coming from the West Coast. So the significant thing to me about Big was the texture of how he was kicking his shit. I was like, yo, that sounds kind of gangster as opposed to what had what we had going on at the time in New York. And again, this is they're making the album 92, 93. So we're talking this is around the time the low end theory is one of the biggest records out. And Tribe is on their way to recording Midnight Marauders, which is probably one of my favorite albums in the history of like not just hip hop, one of my favorite albums ever. Um, so New York needed a win like desperately. Uh, again, I said earlier that I'm recording this on September 13th and, uh, it was the day that Tupac finally passed away to gun, uh, wounds. And I said something, somebody was like, is this the day Tupac died? And I was like, this is the day Pac died. And this is the day the West coast went silent for years. There was no major artists like Dre came out with that. For, like a lot of people forget after like they talk about aftermath with Eminem and 50 Cent and Kendrick and his first album but like the first two aftermath albums were considered failures commercially like the Dr. Dre presents the aftermath did not do good the firm album did not do good Eminem it, it took Eminem to really put Dr. Dre back in that space where people were like okay Dre's a fucking genius so the west coast was musically silent for a while but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of tribe and a lot of more conscious rap and stuff like that at the time. And other than Nas, because uh, Illmatic is 90, Illmatic and Ready to Die are within like a year of each other. So, you know, other than that, it is what it is. Like, it was a lot of tribe. They were the hottest shit out at that time. So, you know, if Easy Mo be to say this, he's 100% right. Um, before Ready to Die, you had people like Redman who was gritty and funky and dirty, but not as dirty as Biggie. So it was a brand new way of speaking. It was a brand new approach to the lyrics. In a way, to me, it was almost the New York answer to what uh, West Coast gangster rap had going on. From 92 up to like before Biggie came out, Snoop Dogg was killing us. Snoop Dogg was number one. But once Puff released Craig Max Flavor in your ear, a lot of people probably don't know, but I produced that too. Easy Moby has a lot. So when you think about, like I said, residuals, when Puff did all those bad boy compilations, just think about how much Easy Mo B stood to make off of those records because he produced a lot of the early bad boy stuff. Um, when Puff released Craig Max Flavor in Year, a lot of people probably don't know, but I produced that too. And when Big came out, it was like, that's it. Everyone was like, we got to follow what they doing. That became the new standard. I'm very grateful for playing a part and contributing to what I call help helping champion a brand new era, a brand new label imprint out the gate, Bad Boy Records. Nobody had heard of them before. When Bad Boy came in, Bad Boy took over, plain and simple. We always got to understand that, that we are a result of what came before us. Big knew where it all came from. In him, I heard Big Daddy Kane, the comedy of like a red man. I heard the gangster tale side of him coming out of him as compared to Schoolie D, Easy e NWA, that's what it's about, realizing and recognizing where all this is coming from. Big used to talk to me about how hard shit was. He would tell me stuff like that when we just be riding around the car, be like, you know what I'm saying, Mo? You producing, you straight. I got to get paper, man. I'm looking at him like in my mind saying, yo, you kind of right. He was on the come up and a lot of things he was doing he probably didn't want to do. I don't think we ever really want to do all the things that it seems like we have to do, but he was doing them. And obviously after he got on and made a brand new career for himself in music, he had nothing to do with that past life anymore. So in a sense, his story is a story of of about probably 75% of the black youth today doing a bunch of things that they don't really want to do, but they end up doing them anyway. That's why for a lot of young kids, this rap is their ticket, their way out. 
I'm sure Big saw the music as that. Um, Big has a line. You either, if you're from the hood, you either sling, crack, rock, or you got a wicked jump shot. Like he said, and either that or you rap. That was the way out. That's and, and to a lot of us. Now, not to me, because I always stayed away from the streets. Now, like I have like uncles who sold dope, you know, cousins who sold dope. My brother, you know, a lot of them did a lot of stuff in the streets, but I always strayed from that. I always stayed more on the creative side of things, you know, while they were sitting there. You know, they didn't think that I was understanding rap. They're like, how do you not? And I'm like, I understand it. You know, it's just different because like my training was I was playing the drums by the age of eight. I was playing the cello at 12 and I was playing the trumpet at 13. So my musical training, you know, I am a child of the hip hop generation, but my musical training actually comes from reading and writing actual notes. Um, but it also helped me to understand drum patterns and why Q-Tip would pick certain drum loops for tribe records and things like that. So, you know, it's it all comes back together into one pot, right? And And that's hip hop. And, you know, aside from jazz, hip hop is the last true, you know, art form. We had to borrow from other places because we didn't have the means. And that's all there is to it. Um, but anyway, getting back to the article... Number nine is The What, which is one of my favorite big songs. Again, Method Man is one of my favorite rappers. This song also produced by Easy Mo B. Uh, Method Man, my relationship with Big was cool. When I seen him, it was always love. Even if the rest of my niggas ain't fuck with him, I fucked with him because it was like, well, that's how they feel. I don't necessarily feel that way about you and shit. It was always on speaking terms. We smoked blunts and shit. We almost got bagged smoking some weed at the airport in North Kakalaka. Word, the guy came over, we all lit up cigarettes, but that's a long story right there. He was a funny motherfucker too, make you laugh all fucking day. It was no secret Ray didn't like him, Ghost didn't like him, they thought he was a biter, but if you look at Ray and Ghost, they don't like nobody, which is true. And the funny thing is, Ray and Ghost didn't like each other initially, like they shot at each other, so that goes to show you how deep shit was, and that's why the Wu-Tang Bond is one of the craziest Bonds. Um... The rest of my niggas had love for Big. It was just Ray and Ghost. The other niggas had no problem. You can't hate a nigga for doing his thing. It's ridiculous. Now, speaking of Ray and Ghost, if you listen to Only Built uh, for Cuban Links, um, there is a portion on there where Ray and Ghost, it's like, I believe it's an interlude where they're like, yo, this nigga bit Nas. And they were talking about Big's album cover. So actually, Illmatic was already out by the time Ready to Die came out. Illmatic, you know, the album cover is a picture. Initially, it was a picture. If you watch Time is Illmatic, it's a documentary. It's available on Peacock, and you don't have to do the full subscription where you have to pay monthly. You can just do the base level subscription and watch it. But there's a picture. Nas's father, Oludara, um, had finally, he hadn't seen, the, you know, Nas and Jungle, a.k.a. Jabari, for quite some time. And he came back to Queensbridge, and he saw them, and they saw him, and they ran up and hugged him. And there was a guy outside with a camera who took the picture. But in Nas, you know, Olu, he says that he could kind of see the change in Nas since he had been gone. So uh, the other portion of the picture, like, features Jungle and, and some stuff like that, but they cropped that out, and that's the picture on Nas's album cover for Illmatic. So when Ready to Die comes a year later, they have a picture of a baby with an afro on the front cover, and it's supposed to be big, and the impetus is that he's been ready to die from the day he was born. Well, Ghost and Ray felt like he was biting Nas, and that's where that whole, that interlude on the Only Built for Cuban Links album comes from, like, yo, the nigga bit Nas. So that's why Ray and Ghost didn't really, you know, fuck with Big or whatever. But I'm pretty sure 
I've heard Ray say that, you know, he didn't harbor any ill will to her and he thought that Big was a phenomenal rapper. And that sounds like, that's just the type of dude that Ray is. Like, Raekwon is, he's, he's definitely, he's one of our elder statesmen of hip-hop. He doesn't get the credit that probably a Puff or a Dre or a Snoop or a Hove uh, get. But Ray is up there, too. But he's just, you know, Ray and Ghost are different type of dudes. They really are. But, you know, thank God for Ray and Ghost. Like, I don't know if hip hop is hip hop without Ray and Ghost. It just made sense that only built for Cuban links is featuring Ghostface Killer. You know what I mean? Like everybody's like, oh, it's a Ray solo album. I mean, it is, but there's a lot of fucking Ghost on that record. Ghost is on the album cover with him. Remember, these dudes shot at each other. So that tells you how deep that bond is within the people of Wu-Tang, the members of Wu-Tang. But anyway, um, but there were moments where they uh, in the house and we in the house and my niggas, it's like we're a unit. We moved as a unit. So where if one of my niggas ain't speaking, then nobody was speaking and we would just roll right by a nigga and walk right past. But, you know, little C's can vouch for this and my niggas can vouch for this. I always stopped to give word with Big no matter what. There was a show at the shelter. I think that was the name of the place. And he had performed and Wu-Tang performed that night and Yo-Yo performed that night as well. Shout out to Yo-Yo. Outside the club, Big approached me and shit like, yo, I want to do something with you on my album. I was like, all right, yo, just make it happen. I'll come through and shit. I knew Tracy Waffles, and she was tight with Puff and them. She works for him now. She hooked everything up. I went through that night, kicked it for a while and shit, talking back and forth about shit, and that's when I found out he was a funny nigga because he had me cracking up. We puffed some blunts. Moby threw on the beat, and he was like, let's just grind this shit out. We wrote our verses. We was both in the same spot writing our verses together. The way he ended his verse, he wanted me to start my verse with T-H-O-D because he ends his verse with, you can't fuck with me, M-E. And T-H-O-D, of course, Method Man, there's the record, M-E-T-H-O-D, man. So I thought Big obviously was a fan of Wu-Tang, and I would imagine it probably stung him a little to, to understand that Ghost and Ray didn't really, you know, too much care for him. I, that would Because, like, for him to do is to structure the verse that way, he had to be listening to the Wu album. I'm sorry. He just had to. Um, but anyway, but it didn't actually come out that way. You can't hear it because I came over the top of him. If I would have rhymed, if I wouldn't have rhymed over him, it wouldn't have been on beat. When I left, we didn't have no title for the shit, but it was a tight ass song. I couldn't care less about the title because at the time, Wu Tang songs never had a title that had anything to do with the song. Like the hook would be, yeah, nigga, kill nigga, but the title of the song would be death and currents wake of the absence to the third power or some shit and a lot of that comes from rizzo like a lot of like protect the neck protect your neck is the name of the song and they do say protect your neck like cream is the name of the song and obviously the hook is cash rules everything around me it's an acronym for that there are some songs where like some wu-tang songs is like why is this the fucking title again because it, it just doesn't make sense but that's some real rizzo shit if you think about it uh, Easy Moby goes on to say, I remember Meth came to the studio, I was the producer, but I was being a little groupy, like, oh shit, there go Method Man over there knowing that this nigga's gonna blow and we about to be big here. Just taking it all in, just loving it for the moment when it, that it was. When I heard the uh, chorus, fuck the world, don't ask me for shit, I was like, okay, this is definitely ain't going on the radio. Again, like I was saying, I guess there was that whole sensitive part about me there. I went again worrying, yo man, we gonna sell records, I don't want them to pull it down off the shelf. That nigga's dope, man. We can't mess this up. Again, Lil' C's was like, yo, Mo, chill. You sensitive. That's Lil' C's, my man. He gets the sensitive credit. 
that uh the what i titled that song that took me back to two years before when i recorded with miles davis because miles was hard uh was a hardly talk express himself when he wanted the way he wanted kind of guy you'd be talking to me just go hmm i once asked miles what he wanted to name a song and we had already recorded about three or four songs and he was like i don't know name name him whatever you want to with the what the song was done and everything and big puff and me was standing there and i remember puff in the particular was like yo what what are we going to call this shit? And I told him, yo, I nicknamed all my beats on the disc that I saved them to. So I know what each disc is. So for whatever reason, I wrote on the disc, the what? Puff was like, yo, that shit is cool. Apparently the title stuck from there. And I always wonder why they named the song that until I read this article. Uh, Method Man, a lot of quotes off that record have been used in hooks for my uh, for other artists' records. I want my money. I want my money, y'all bitch-ass niggas. I got paid 2500 for the what? And I had to hunt Puffy down for my 2500 it took like two months to get it. I was like, come on, Puff, stingy bastard, give me my money. That's funny, but I'm pr pretty sure that Meth and Puff have a good relationship now. Again, they come from that era, and a lot of dudes from that era didn't survive. Like, when the Jay and Nas thing was going down, I don't think I ever felt it was going to end up with one of them being shot. Um, but again, when the Pac and Big thing was going down, I didn't think it was going to end up with one of them being shot. Now, they didn't shoot each other, but, you know, you could definitely say that Big's death is a result of people of him being in Los Angeles and people felt like that was still the territory for death row and people Pac's death was very very apparent in our memories because it was only six months prior um you know Pac's death was more than likely a retaliation for the the beating in the hotel after the Tyson fight that they gave to Orlando Anderson which is a result of a situation where somebody's death row chain got snatched at a mall so but when you think about when when we found out that if you were lucky enough to be at the concert where hove brought Nas out and that was them piecing it up like consider yourself extremely lucky for the rest of your life the rest of us had to find out via the radio or a magazine article or something like that but it's cool that they pieced it up meth doesn't hate puff and he probably he was just like yo puff i want my money like a lot of like think about this a lot of the dudes when they knocked out their first album were still living in the hood Nas was definitely still in Queensbridge when Elmatic came out um the the members of the, of the Wu-Tang Clan were probably still in Staten Island Meth is actually originally from Long Island but we won't go too deep into that but anyway so you know that $2,500 is fucking everything to a dude who comes from the block and stuff like that and who has to actually work for every penny he gets those uh those residual checks don't come in till after the the money's recouped on the album like if you didn't know that like the budget they give you to record your album that stuff is all recoupable and the album has to make that money back before you see a single dime so remember that uh and it's even harder now because there's no there some people still buy the album outright but most people are streaming it so true sales have actually taken a plummet people are like Oh, he did twenty five thousand his first week, and if you did that in your first week off an album when it was you had to buy, like literally going to the store and buy the physical copy, the label would drop you. Now that's considered a good week, and if you did that in the nineties, you were getting dropped by your label. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so we get to number ten, "Juicy" by Polk and Puffy. Additional vocals by Total. Uh, Polk, obviously, one half of the Trackmasters. Uh, Seas goes juicy was done later that was a need to do record you gotta understand that was back in like 94 95 niggas would start rhyming over r&b beats that juicy beat that's an r&b beat we used to listen to that shit a lot like we have this one enough tape 
and he did like this old school mix that had all this old shit on it. And this CD went from one house to uh, the car to another motherfucking house to the studio. That was the CD we used to listen to all day. That's what I listen to right now, but I got that shit from Big. Like Big listened to a bunch of old shit and a bunch of old school shit too, like old school hip hop shit. So Polk goes on to say Puff had the idea he wanted to make a radio record that was still melodic. He suggested to, to me doing something with Entume's Juicy Fruit, so I took it home and I put it together. I went into the studio at the time. Puffy was living in Scarsdale, and I was staying there for a minute. I used an MPC-60, just reinforced the bass lines and drums and tried to make it bigger than the original. But it was pretty much I just looped it and had the elements on top of it to give it a little more hip-hop flavor. I added hi-hats and bass lines. I arranged it better so he'd know where the rhyme and the hook comes in. The hook is like another break in the record. There are lots of breaks in the record, so I had enough room to take all the parts that we needed. Big thought it was a popcorn record. Again, if you watch the biopic, Big said, yo, if I do this, niggas is going to laugh at me. Uh, I'm not sure if he said that verbatim, um, but again, it makes for a good story, I suppose. Um, he wanted to make all gangster records. But Puff knew at the time radio wasn't into get that gangster rap stuff. Big was like, yo, this guy's trying to make me an opera singer. Big was going to do everything that Puff asked him. He was at least going to try it. Once it became a hit, the real uh, he realized these are the records I need to make. When you get into this game, you want to be a hardcore rapper, but those rep records only go so far. Now, if you look back, like, look at the Ja Rule 50 Cent situation. 50 clown Ja for making radio hits. There was still hard-ass shit on Jaws records, but he had to make radio hits. And Murder, Inc., and those people, Irv and Ja and Ashanti, especially those three in principle, made a lot of fucking money because they knew what they needed to do in the studio. Where 50 told everybody that he was this gangster, and then he made those same songs. It's like, okay, but who are you for real? And a lot of people don't realize that, and that's where it comes down to casual fans not understanding the music business at the end of the day it's still a business if you just want to make music you can make music and put it out for your friends you don't have to sell it on a label or put it on a streaming service when you put it out for consumers you become a member of the music business and you better know what you're doing or at least have some sort of understanding of what it is that you're trying to accomplish um Matt Life, a.k.a. Matty C, goes, Both me and Big wanted Machine Gun Funk to be the first single. That's what we both agreed on. Slowly, he was being swayed otherwise. I can remember a conversation with him trying to tell me, Matt, I understand now that this uh, Juicy is the record that's going to make me have a commercial success. The fact that this is interesting because how anybody thought a song called Machine Gun Funk could be a radio single is beyond me. We live in an era now where you don't exactly need a single to break an album. You just don't because of streaming. Um, and I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to radio in my car. Like, I think the morning of my aunt's funeral a couple months back, I turned on KEZK, which is a soft rock station here in St. Louis. And I just kind of wanted to be mellowed out because, again, I'm going to a funeral. And it's a, it's a pretty touching thing. And, you know, shout out to all the people who have unfortunately lost people due to COVID-19. It is a very shitty situation. But anyway, other than that, I don't listen to the radio. I listen to either music or podcasts in my car. So to think about a programmer at a station who's like, yeah, put this in rotation, put this in machine gun funk. That's not a single. It just isn't. So the fact that they big being a novice at that point, it makes sense that he didn't know that, yo, you can't have this as a, as a single. 
Now, Matty C didn't work for a label, but he was in the industry enough working for the source that he should have some understanding that, hey, no, you can't do that as a single. Uh, Charles Alexander, a.k.a. Prince Charles, that fear that I don't know if I can succeed was driving Puffy, was driving Biggie. Biggie saying it's the lyrics of Juicy. If it didn't work out, he was going back to slinging crack on the street. It was a time when everybody was not too sure if the public was going to get it. Uh, the next record is Everyday Struggle, which is my favorite song on the album. It's number 11. That's produced by Norman and Diggin, the Blues Brothers. Uh, C's. The storyline of it is that shit is just a real mission for some people. Like, just that whole rundown, it was so detailed. Just that struggle. Just that life moving that way. He just broke that shit down, detailed it. It's telling some, something about his life or somebody else's life. That shit is like watching a series or watching a movie. Digger says, Big was getting antsy, like, yo, I gotta get this song off. I want that song bad. I could see him just, like, sitting at the board. He wasn't saying nothing. He was just bobbing his head. When I was picking out the instruments, he would make a face like, yeah, I want something similar to that. That guy was always thinking about how he wanted to make something better. Again, Everyday Struggle is legit probably my favorite big song of all time. And I, the, the instruments on the song are just flawless. Um, and this is another song, like, I don't want to live no more. Sometimes I see death knocking at my front door. Like, he's very much telling you that this is it. If this hip-hop shit don't work out, I'm going back to the goddamn block. This is what I'm doing. And this song epitomizes it. And the theme of the album is very much there. Like, I wouldn't call Ready to Die a conceptual album. It is in a sense because from the start of the album, the intro is very, very integral in setting the tone. And then the very last thing you hear on the album, and we'll get to that at the end, it's very much a tone as well. And then it actually leads into the, the next album. So... It all is, it's a conceptual album, but not to the point where it goes the same way. It, it's not a concept throughout. There's just different songs in there. Whereas Good Kid, Mad City is a conceptual album from beginning to end because it's about the day, a day in the life of a kid from Compton. So that is a conceptual album. I wouldn't exactly call Ready to Die one though. So the next song on the album is Me and My Bitch, and that's produced by Norman, Digger, the Blues Brothers, Chucky Thompson, and Puffy. Uh, the instruments are actually on the record to play by Chucky Thompson. Um, this is another seminal song about uh, basically love and hip hop. Like me and my bitches referenced by so many other artists because it just other than like, I mean, before that you had I Need Love by LL Cool J and you had Benita Applebaum by Tribe. And those were like the biggest records that were about like you know, a relationship with your girl or something like that, or pursuit of a girl or something like that in hip hop. Those were just it. And, uh, you know, Tribe didn't catch flack for Benita because, you know, they were different. They were seen like these bohemian dudes of rap. And they were, again, they, they state very well, like a lot of people probably wanted to hate on us, but they didn't because we were part of Zulu Nation. But LL caught a lot of flack for rapping about like needing love and stuff like that. So when Big did me and my bitch, that was like him representing for like needing love, but it was like on some hood shit and like everybody fuck with me and my bitch. So Nasheem Merrick says that that was a remix because we ha uh, we already had a track for that. I don't know why Puff ain't used the original track. Either he couldn't clear the sample or I don't know what happened. I forget the original song. It probably was an Al Green record, but I don't know. I can't remember. We did it over. Chuck played the guitar. He used original instruments. I guess that was another sample problem. 
at this point, he's everybody's calling him the Reverend Al Green. So if the original record did have an Al Green sample in it, I'm pretty certain that Al Green was not going to clear that sample for them. And I would imagine that's how it went down. Now, I don't know Puff, and if I ever did meet Puff, I would definitely ask him, you know, I hear there's a different version of Me and My Bitch. What happened with that record? Because from my understanding, like Nasheed Merrick says, this was basically a remix. Uh, actually, so Digger goes on to say the original sample that we used uh, was from a Minnie Riperton song that Stevie Wonder wrote. When they sent it out to him, he was like, I love the song, but this cursing, I'm not with it. You can't use it. So they got Chucky to come in and add some bars here and take some bars there. He just had to change up the music so that Big could use it. Big started to record Me and My Bitch at the end of a session, and he didn't like it. So he kind of like erased it, and he went into another studio, wrote some more stuff, and then he came back out. It probably took him a good 20 to 30 minutes. He ate before he went in. Then he comes out like he was just... Uh, like he just fucking walked to Russia. Ain't no more chicken wings. Order some more wings. Like, yo, we just finished eating. You was in there for like 20 minutes. He just burnt all that shit off. Big was just a real funny ass dude all the time. The only time he had a little more grimace on his face is when Puff tried to be an asshole. When that was going on, Big was like, this fucking guy, he's trying to rule me. I can't rock like that. And again, as I stated, that was said in other situations. And again, we'll cover that in life after death because apparently there was a lot of that going on during the recording sessions for life after death uh next track on the album is big papa that was produced by chucky thompson and diddy uh nasheen merrick goes on to say puff said he wanted to use between the sheets he said loop it me and chucky went in that's when we uh moved the studio to the hit factory and reproduced it in there that song was actually supposed to be for mr cheeks the lost boys we gave that song to the lost boys and then something happened and puff was like get that song back get it back from him we traded them for another track. Remember that song, Jeeps, Lexus, Coops, Beamers, and Benz? My favorite Lost Boys song, by the way. Uh, that track, Easy Mill B, did for Craig Mack. That was going to follow up Flavor in Your Ear, but Craig didn't like it. He couldn't rhyme to it or something. So we ended up trading that track to the Lost Boys for Big Papa. Both of those songs became hits, so I guess it was a good trade. That is a hell of a trade, to be honest with you. Um, Chucky Thompson says, knowing Biggie as a person, he's bigger than New York. He's a real universal artist. His style reminded me of Ice Cube. So I was like, let me see if I can put him on a bigger page. And that's why I came with that little West Coast line. I just kind of took him out of the New York vibe and took him a little, a little bit more out West and he carried it. At the time we were listening to Snoop's album, we knew what was going on in the West through Dr. Dre. Big just knew the culture. He knew what was going on with hip hop. It was more than just New York. It was all over. Uh, Maddie C says, I think another important misconception about the making of that album, the production of that album, is that Puffy was coming up with creative, catchy loops for Big to rhyme on. Big was very savvy himself in thinking of creative, catchy loops to rhyme on. I can remember specifically him telling me I'm going to rhyme over that Bonita Apple Bomb, a Tribe Called Quest 1990 single that sampled the Isley Brothers Between the Sheets. That was his idea. That's Big Papa, that's Between the Sheets. Bonita Applebaum does sample Between the Sheets, and then, of course, it is sampled in uh, Big Papa. Between the Sheets is one of those classic Isley Brothers records. I know all of that stuff and a lot about the Isleys and a lot of stuff because I would wake up on Saturday mornings. That's how I woke up. My dad would go. He would be the first one up in the house, and he would go to the stereo and play a lot of classic stuff. And that's why I'm such a big fan of the Isleys and like the Whispers and a lot of that stuff. Now, the older I get, I appreciate that stuff more. But also because, like I said, my my initial training in music was reading and, you know, writing music and stuff like that and playing live instruments. But um, yeah, I'm a huge Isley fans 
fan as a result of my dad playing that stuff all around the house. Uh, the next track is Respect. Uh, this is produced by Polk and Puffy. Additional vocals by Diana King. Uh, Banger says, 1970-something nigga, I don't sweat the date. My mom's is late. That shit was ill. How'd he do our situation or our conversation? He analyze it and absorb it and suck it up and then make a song about it. He absorbed his whole life. That's all they really say about Respect. Uh, Respect is one of those obscure Biggie records. It's not exactly obscure because it's on the album, but it's not a song that people talk about very often, to be honest with you. Um, number 15 is Friend of Mine, produced by Easy Mo B again. He produced the bulk of this album. It's clear to see. Uh, Easy Mo B says Big used to be out on the Ave. He used to be standing out there with C's, and we can either find him on the Ave or he was around the corner on his stoop. <laughs> Uh, if he was in the neighborhood, he was either in uh, one of them two places. I remember him hooking up this beat and finding Big at his fried chicken spot, which to my knowledge is still right there in Fulton between Washington and St. James. I rolled up in the car. I got the beat ready. I'm happy. I was like, yo, Big. He came over to the passenger window. I told him to get in. I was like, yo, check this out, man. He was like, yo, I'm loving that, Mo. I think that was uh, helpful. I think what was helpful was the hook that I had on there. That just told him what to talk about on the record. He ended up doing a relationship type of record talking about a chick. Uh, the thing about the record is the hook sampled, you're no friend of mine, you know that ain't right, that's Black Mambo. I might have been working with hard ass big, but I was going to pull in a whole other crowd because of Black Mambo. Black Mambo was from the Paradise uh, Garage. DJ Larry Levin would uh, throw that on, either mix it with beats with other songs, or he would just throw it on acapella by itself in the club. And you would hear people stomping and going crazy. So I knew that anybody who heard that song was going to think about Paradise Garage, a disco dance music type of club from back in the day. So there are dance music elements attached to the song, but it fit. Um, Friend of mine, is a it's a dope record. But again, it's one of those records that in Big's catalog that people don't normally talk about often. It, it just isn't talk about, talked about often. But uh Big is the greatest. He, he was the fucking, like, when somebody, for him to say what he said, um, and the next song, he actually talks about this. Premier talks about it, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. For him to call himself the greatest of all time, very early, like, in the, the recording and producing of his first album, that's fucking nuts. Nobody would ever have the balls to say that, but Big saw the bigger picture. You know, no pun intended. So then we get to number 16, Unbelievable. This is produced by Primo. Uh, Unbelievable was the final song recorded for Ready to Die. I used to see Big all the time over in Washington and Fulton because I used to live on Washington between Lafayette and Green at Branford Marsalis Crib. We'd also we'd always go down to the corner to get our 40s and Big and all of them. Kim, everybody used to be on the corner every Friday. I, see, I used to see Big and Big was always like, one day I'm going to get a beat from you. But when it came uh, to him asking me to do Unbelievable, I didn't really have time to do the song because I was about to go on tour. He was like, dog, I got to have you on here. He even told me my budget is over. I have no money. Preem, please look out. I was get to getting top prices back then, but it was big, so I was like, fuck it. I did that song for $5,000. Primo was a fucking legend in hip-hop. Like, just think about Friend of Foe for Jay-Z, Unbelievable for Big, New York State of Mind for Nas. Those three songs along, like, form the holy tr trinity of hip-hop in New York. Like, when you think about New York hip-hop and you think about the greats, Big, Nas, and Hove always come up think about what he did for those three alone right unfucking precedent uh i was telling him dog i don't know what to give you because if i do something for you it's got to be bananas he said man i don't care if you take impeach the president take that and do a beat i said really you serious he said hell yeah 
I went and uh, got the Honey Drippers Break Lee Classic and Peach the President, took the snare and kick and chopped it up and started playing those little sounds. I wanted to make something more hardcore because he had played me warning and stuff like that. I wanted to make something that was equally as hard and better. And he was like, nah, keep playing them little buttons you pushing and change it up and make it do different melodies on the hook and stuff. He sat there a while and went in there and did the vocals. I never saw him write nothing. He'd be like, let me get a pen and a pad. And then he wouldn't write shit. Might scribble little funny objects or something. That was it. Matter of fact, when we were doing Unbelievable, he he brought Faith to the session the day we laid the verses, and he said, yo, Premiere, this is going to be my wife. I'm about to marry this woman. I was like, word, I didn't think nothing of it. Sorry, I was like, word, I didn't think nothing of it, and all of a sudden, he was married. Big, Big and Faith met, and two weeks later, they got married. Like, that's how the story goes. Now, their relationship was pretty rocky and tumultuous. They didn't have the time to get to know each other or anything like that, but they were, they were hip-hop's preeminent Premiere couple that time like big in faith it was just like you know it, the there's that iconic i think it was vibe magazine where they're sitting in the the convertible lincoln he's got the suit with the hat on and faith is there as well that's like one of the most iconic shots in hip-hop so you know um so big was the one that told me to do the r kelly scratch on the chorus he was like yo scratch that part of your body's calling me because your body's calling was popular at the time and i was like that might not match in the key he was like just try it i didn't have the record with me that day so i went and got it the next day from my crib brought it back to the studio made the scratch and i was like damn man this shit actually goes and the the part that you know Again, when I said R. Kelly, if if you if you put R. Kelly in the verses, like you would be surprised at how much stuff he's a part of. Like that part, he's like, it's unbelievable, your body. So that unbelievable part is where Preem scratched that into the record, and that that the rest of the the rest is fucking history. And at that session, uh, Big said to Preem, "I'm the greatest of all fucking time," and it just kind of stuck, like him being the king of new york was there were others who were like chomping at the bit for the throne the so-called throne but you know it, it was kind of hard to argue against it big was so fucking different and dude i just sometimes like i'd like i have to sit back and realize like i was 12 right i was 12 when no i wasn't even 12 yet or maybe i was no, I wasn't 12. I was 11, almost 12, when, when Ready to Die came out. And um, the fact that I got to grow up and witness all of this in real time is still really ill to me. Because people, when I see interviews and like YouTube videos and people talk about it, and they're like... And it, it's crazy because I'm 38 now and I live through this stuff. And I see these people who are like in their mid-20s who make like these YouTube videos about this stuff. And they're like... Well, such and such says, and I was like, that's not how it went. Because I, I lived through this. Like, I know how this all went down because I lived through it. So it's really crazy to see how we look back and ref reflect on all these things all these years later. But like I said, being able to grow up and be a part of it was, to me, it was very, very, it, it's just, I, it's hard to put in, into words. It's hard to quantify what it means to me. So uh, the last song in the album is Suicidal Thoughts. It's produced by Lord Finesse. Again, legend, digging the crates. Um, and this is where I, talks about, where I talk about, again, it's not exactly a conceptual album per se, but to a certain extent it is because the beginning is 
we hear his mother give birth to him we hear you know him robbing the train we hear him being released from jail and at this point the narrative is i have to make it one way or another i'm ready to die and by the same you know by the same point when you think about an album like 50 cents get rich or die trying there was so much more like that's a classic album in hip-hop no matter how i feel about 50 and some of the dumbass shit he says he's a fucking genius of a businessman I'll, I'll give him that as well i'll give him that credit um that is a classic album now what if he had used that album like done it as a conceptual album like think about it like it's already one of hip-hop's classic albums but what if it was a conceptual album it would really be held up there like one of the greatest fucking albums of all time but he didn't want to go that route and that's perfectly fucking fine but the impetus of that album was get rich or die trying like this is all i have left i'm gonna try this shit to get rich and if i get killed in the process then so be it but at least i have to know i gave it my absolute all and for big it was like yo i'm ready to die i've had a kid i've been to prison nothing can stop me so if this rap shit don't work i'm gonna go back to the block and chances are i'm either gonna get shot or arrested and back end up back in jail i'm ready to die for this shit so when you get to the last you know track on the album suicidal thoughts you know it it goes to take on that conceptual idea again so lord finesse says when i first worked with big he was as street as you can get you couldn't get any more street than what big was rapping about and what he was bringing to the table. But him and Puff were both growing at an incredible rate. Between Puff being an MCA and getting ready to go to Bad Boy and Biggie just being able to absorb what Puff was sending him like a sponge, Biggie watching and learning uh, Puff was like Peyton and Malone, you know? Uh, Puffy dishing it and Biggie... That's a weird... You could have said Peyton and Kemp or Stockton and Malone. I don't know why he said Peyton and Malone because it took... Took me a minute, like, what is he talking about? I'm like, okay, so he's talking about Gary Payton and Carl Malone, but that's weird. I don't know, but whatever. That's a weird analogy. Um, Puffy Dishon and Biggie capping, uh, capturing and scoring, dunking, that combination was incredible. Puff was at a point in his career where he was growing at an enormous rate. He had Craig Mack, and he had just come off of Mary and Jodeci. Again, Puff is responsible for Mary J. Blige's career. Like, to this day, she's like, Puff is my brother. Mary And, and Puff will say, Mary's my sister. Like, you don't you know, you don't see a picture of a, a industry event where you see Mary and don't see her and Puff together or something like that. They really are. Blood couldn't make them any closer. Mary wouldn't be Mary if it wasn't for Diddy. Like, Mary's called the queen of uh, hip-hop and R&B, and that definitely comes from Puff. Puff put the backwards hat on her. Puff put her in the combat boots. Puff put her in the baseball jersey. Like, Puff is responsible for Mary's success. Just as much as Mary's voice is, Puff's creative vision is responsible as well. And there is no Puff with, there's no Mary without Puff. Um, uh, he was ready to show the world he was able to scope big to not only be an underground artist, but to be well-rounded, to not just dunk, but he'd be able to finger roll, crossover dribble to be the best player he could be in the game. And big learned it real, real quick. When Ready to Die was almost done, big had all the raw street, uh, incredible songs and Puff said okay you got to do what you wanted with the album now let's do what I want to do with the album Big was like Puff said to do this so I'm going to do it Puff let me do what I want to do so I'm going to do what he wants to do too because of that putting his ego to the side like I'm going to try this and that gave him the edge and after that he tried everything and it all worked it was crazy when we did Suicidal Thoughts I laid the beat and Big told me he had this incredible idea but I wasn't in the studio with him when he laid that song I didn't hear Suicidal Thoughts until the album came out 
people kept telling me, yo, that song you did with Big was crazy. And I was like, what is they talking about? Because I wasn't at the session. But when I heard it, all, all I could think in my head was, wow. Uh, Prince Charles Alexander goes on to say, suicidal thoughts was funny because at the end we were trying to get a thud. At the end of the song, he drops the phone and falls because he has shot himself. So he shoots himself, the phone drops, and there was supposed to be a body thud. But we, we could not get a body thud. We looked on all kinds of different tapes that have sound effects. So I was like, yo, you know what we're going to have to do? So Puffy and I told Biggie to go in there. And to his credit, he's a trooper. He was a really great guy. We turned off the lights and we played the music. And we said, Biggie, when the gun shoots, just fall. Just fall as hard as you can. Man, that gun went off and we heard the biggest fucking thud you ever want to hear in your life. We started rolling. We thought it was hilarious because we didn't think he was going to do it. But he did it, and when I listen to it now, that's one of the things I always think about that day. It was me, Puffy, Biggie. It was the way you would think an album was done. All the creative people are in one room. I don't know if Puffy works that way anymore. That was really intimate. He's very much an executive now. He comes in and sanctions and puts his name on things that he's requested. Back in the day, was we was creating on the fly. Nasheem Merrick says, that song is so real. I never talked to Big about that record, but everybody else was like, we don't even know if that can go on the album because he killed himself on the record. It's like, how could you come back from that? No one has ever killed themselves at the end of their album. The energy that came through him was, in the was the truth to everybody. He said things that was in everybody's head, but no one has ever put it down like that. He said things on that album and that record in particular, in particular that a lot of people in the hood, people in the streets, think that way. He said, I'm a piece of shit. It ain't hard to fucking tell. I was like, wow, how could you say that, son? Um, and this is what I was talking about with it being a conceptual album. He says that, and Suicidal Thoughts is really interesting because the whole time he's saying, I'm going to kill myself, he calls Puff at like 2 a.m. or something like that, and he's telling him, like, yo, this is it. I, You know... What do I have to live for? I'm ready to die. And he's like telling him like, you know, my girl's pregnant. Her sister's pregnant. I'm the, I'm, I'm the reason both of them are pregnant. All this shit is going on. Like, I have no reason to live. And he shoots himself. And then like, you hear his heartbeat. Like, that's the nutty. Like, that. the last thing you hear on that album is his heartbeat. And again, this is a conceptual album to a certain extent because the way it begins and then the way it ends, but it's not conceptual all the way through. Well, where it picks up with is life after death. And this is why I think the big is the greatest because it's an overarching theme over two albums, really three because a double album actually on your contract with your company, with your label, a double album actually counts as two albums towards your deal. Say if you have a five album deal and you do a double album on your second album, you're three albums through the deal already. You're three albums through your five through the deal already because you did a double album. So there's an, this overarching theme of I'm ready to die and I've killed myself and this is what life is like after death. But again, we will cover that and there's no reason to make you really wait. So that's actually going to be the next episode. So stay tuned. Um, tell your friends. Again, patreon.com slash all our nonsense. My name is Derek. Peace out.